welcome everybody to the sixth podcast in our UNSW Canberra series on navigating uncertainty. Today's podcast is the second half of a two-part conversation between me, Dave Kilcullen, and Katja Theodorakis, one of our PhD scholars here at the School of Humanities and Social Sciences uh, in UNSW Canberra. And today we're going to be talking about navigating uh, the fog of truth and talking about uh, propaganda, narrative, and how all those things mesh with how uh, we think about the current and the future environment. So in tumultuous and unpredictable times, we strongly believe that careful fact-based work in the humanities and social sciences can help shed light on many of our current challenges and help us to chart the way forward. And today's podcast is the same as last one, is sponsored by the Future Operations Research Group here at um, UNSW Canberra. And I'd like to start by acknowledging the Ngunnawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which UNSW Canberra stands. Uh, I'd like to pay my respects to the elders, both past and present, and extend that respect to other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders who might be present uh, listening to the podcast today. So, as I said, my name is Dave Kukhan. I'm a professor of international and political studies at HASS, the School of Humanities and Social Sciences at UNSW Canberra, and I'm the co-convener of the Future Operations Research Group. And this is the second part of my conversation with Katja Theodorakis, who's currently completing her PhD as one of our higher degree by research scholars. So, Katja, let me start with a really open-ended question. Um, tell us what you're working on and tell us about your project and uh, how you are thinking about your dissertation and the, the, the topic that you're focusing on in your, your doctorate. Uh, thanks, Dave, and, and also welcome back to, to our listener. It's really great pleasure to, to be able to have a chat and, and share some thoughts and hopefully... Um, spark some thinking or even get people to maybe look up some of the some of the uh, works of other great scholars that were that were touching on um what got me into this um so i work on propaganda i've always been really fascinated by how other people think um i grew up in germany and i think that's by default you're kind of confronted with a whole lot of stuff about the history of the country that if you're a little bit sensitive and a little bit intellectually curious you can't really walk past which includes you know, school trips to concentration camps at a tender age and, and reading books like Anne Frank's Diary when Hitler stole the pink um, rabbit or toy rabbit, I think it was called, um, at a very young age. It was ingrained in my psyche, I think, to to find out how something like this can happen and what drives people to political violence and to justify it in in the name of a better order. I think that's what always, even as a, as a young um as a young girl, that kind of went like, how, how is this possible? And I think because it was so close to home, um, I, I've always been in, interested in that. And then I think, you know, we all have those moments where we find ourselves in weird situa situations around the globe, or at least some of us when we've been traveling or backpacking. And I had one of those moments in um, early 2002, and I found myself on a bus in West Africa traveling around there was a lot of tension in the in the environment and I was a first year anthropology student at the University of Amsterdam and I was sort of happily backpacking as you do 
um, quite carefree at that age. And I found myself on a bus between, you know, that third world experience that as anthropology students, you're meant to reflect on quite critically and look into those constructs of you as a white first world person in a so-called third world country. So that was sort of going through my mind. I was sitting on that bus and I go like, oh, it's so odd that everyone has those sort of Hawaiian themed shirts. I've seen them around, but it's like, it's almost like every male's got them on the bus. Like they've got big shipment you know, I wonder what the supply routes are. You're kind of thinking in those terms and because I'm stuck on this bus and it's hot and, you know, there's not much room to move, I kind of just looked at the shirt in front of me after, you know, four hours into a very bumpy ride through the desert and went like, oh, that's not actually a Hawaiian shirt. That's really interesting because in between, you know, the hello, aloha motifs and the flowers and the waves and and all of that, it looks like there's twin towers and it looks like there is a picture of... Osama bin Laden is a lion and it looks like there's a plane flying into the tower. So and I kind of sat there and froze and went, hmm, this is interesting. Um, mm. And be- I think because I'd already been traveling around for a week or so and had, had seen those shirts around, I went like, okay, okay, calm down. Not everyone's a terrorist here. Um, but really got me thinking about why do people support the idea? At no point was I worried that someone would pull out a knife and behead me or kidnap me. It was just like, this is so odd. And I think it got me thinking about sort of the bigger, um, the bigger imaginaries that or ideas that that have traction for people. What the appeal would be, and studying anthropology and and development studies, especially in Amsterdam, that has the Netherlands have quite a critical, reflective approach to looking at their colonial past. There would always be the question of, yeah, well, you know, we had a role to play in this, and why do people feel this resentment? What, there's a reason for anti-Westernism. It's not just fanatical. Um, religious ideology and, and people are or people are nihilists or whatever the arguments are that are very convenient to sort of put it into a little container and say, well, they're different from us because they're either irrational or they're fanatical, um, but not actually trying to make sense of it from a more, um, I guess, from a, from a perspective of really trying to understand what the motivating factors are without sympathizing, just, just trying to put ourselves in those shoes. That was sort of my moment. Um, I think why I ended up here um, studying this, um, and how, how are you framing it in 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 your dissertation? In my dissertation, um, I do frame it um, as an imaginary. I follow Charles Taylor' social imaginary, but I kind of rework that to apply it to a broader context because obviously that's late modern society or postmodern society and post secularism. I have several case studies. I look at jihadis. I also look at. Um, the FARC, possibly the Zapatistas would fall under that and also the IRA um, and how they they use those imaginaries that give rise to action, how they actually how they actually use them in their information operations to gain the moral high ground and actually gain legitimacy and you get, you get into some really interesting dynamics there when you're looking at various actors, some that are genuinely illegitimate because they're using they're using indiscriminate violence against civilians um, and others that actually get away with framing their struggle more in terms of national uh, liberation or it's not just separatist violence. So it's it's looking at how different actors in different contexts with very different motivations and tactics actually go about um, go about harnessing those, I guess, moral motivations and how th- how that gets translated into information operations, how then state actors also try to try to counter that it's kind of a I, I call it sort of a you know a jostle for the moral high ground um, uh-huh. 
And it has applications, I think, beyond insurgent actors or those particular historical case studies. So I did a completely different kind of, of anthropology, so I may be misremembering this, but didn't Charles Taylor draw the idea of the imaginary from Jean-Paul Sartre originally? Did Sartre have a book, I think? Yes, on I think he, he did. Yeah. Um, I think he distanced him, himself quite quickly from that sort of existentialist take. Um, and I did look into it a little bit, um, but for my particular angle, it, it's not as relevant because we're not going into the, I guess, the existentialist side of it. There is an interesting, there's sort of an interesting um, detour uh, to make via Nietzsche and the genealogy of, of morals um, that's relevant here because when I, when you look at jihadis, I find his his work on sort of this the Superman, um, the coming Superman, I find that quite relevant also in, in terms of how jihadis imagine themselves. Um, yeah. And, and yeah, yeah. And, and I guess I'm, Foucault is never far away from my thinking, so I have to give a big yeah. you know, shout well, out to Foucault here yeah. for being quite influential in helping me conceptualise this. Let's come back to Foucault because of boomerang effects in a little <laughs> bit. But before we get to that, I mean, the, the reason I bring Sartre up is... Um, it's always struck me as interesting that Sartre writes that book, right, about the psychology of imagination and how it relates to existence. But he writes it in Paris under German occupation in 1940 or 41. I forget which year it was, right? So I've often wondered how does the, well, what we would call the imaginary, right, that he finds himself in in 1940, how does that affect his you know, his thinking and is there an element of the external environment that sort of bleeds across into his internal perception and influences the way he writes that book. Another book that came out the same year, um, I think it was 1940 when Sartre wrote that book, is Garrett Mattingly's book, The Defeat of the Spanish Armada, which is a history book. It's a military history book about the Spanish attempt to invade the British Isles across the Channel uh, in, in Queen Elizabeth's reign. But he wrote that in Dover, I think it was Dover or somewhere else on the south coast of England, in the summer of 1940 when the Wehrmacht was on the other side of the channel preparing to invade um, England. And he actually makes the point late, you know, late in the book that, you know, to some extent the way I'm thinking about this is influenced by the fact that we might get, be about to get invaded by the, the Nazis, you know. So, I mean, what, what do you think about that? I mean, is there a sort of a dialogue between... Well, let me put it a different way. We talked about Nietzsche, we talked about Sartre. Well, let's talk about Jung for a second, right? Is there a sort of civilizational consciousness that bleeds into the narratives that we select and the way we frame our propaganda? I think only if we want to, because we can reflect and go, well, hang on, what's, what's a civilizational consciousness? Do I need to buy into that? Or can I, can I distance myself from... Um, what went before, I guess, at the more communitarian level and just engage with um, maybe, you know, the subconscious, which may be a lot more psychological than psychosocial maybe. I think the civilizational aspect of it would be a very, that would be sort of, I guess, ethnocentrically constrained, if that makes sense. So I feel like that would be a choice for us to go, okay, we don't actually have to look at it in that way. Does does this say something about our civilizational identity? Because that very easily, you could end up with um, an argument, or you falling into sort of a very, you know, very 
homogenous view of civilizations and cultures, and especially civilizations, is very politically laden. Um, which I think yeah. back then yeah. it also would have been with you know thoughts about the decline of the West, um, and some of those currents that were already uh, showing in sort of the late 1920s and and the Weimar Republic that actually led to um, to all that um, mess and why they ended up finding themselves in in Paris in um, at that time. But I'm thinking I'm taking a very wide berth here. Well, I would just say I mean if if we talked about Michel Foucault earlier. If, if he were here, right, and thank God he's not because he's been dead for 30 years, so that would be unpleasant. Um, but if he were here, he'd be, he would be saying, I think, that you can't decide to opt out of that civilizational imaginary, right, that it's, it's there whether you like it or not um, in a sort of post-structuralist sense, right? I mean, that there's this kind of national, uh, civilizational and community level of sort of collective consciousness which we can try to step outside of, um, but maybe we can't. And then it, those that try to frame propaganda, he, I think he would probably argue that successful propaganda almost by definition fits with a, a civilizational narrative, right? Would, would, is that how you would think about Foucault? No, actually not at all, because I think the one big takeaway for me from Foucault is like he's that big exponent of power and power is everywhere and, you know, everything is is determined by power but it's relational so wherever there's power there's counterpower so i think mm. and especially when you when you combine that with some other thinking about resistance and how many forms resistance can take um for example michelle de Sarteau, it's it's not always this big resistance in um you know in the form of a revolt or a rebellion or some revolutionary action it might take a very different form and i think when you coming back to that anthropological lens and and james scott who we talked about uh, in in the earlier episode, didn't he also write Weapons of the Week? Is that was that him? Yeah, so he wrote Weapons of the Week, which is about Malaysia. It's a yeah. study of a um, peasant resistance in a village in Malaysia. But it's His everyday early- forms of resistance, right? They don't have to take on the form of revolution. His earliest book is actually called The Moral Economy of the Peasant, which yeah. is his dissertation, and it's about Philippine uh, rice growers. And actually, we use that book extensively to think about how to engage with Afghan um, uh, farmers in Afghanistan, you know, 30 years later, which would probably have absolutely appalled James Scott to think about um, military guys using his book. Yeah. Um, but I mean, and but let's go back to Foucault because I wanted to pick up this idea of boomerang effects, right? So just for those that aren't familiar, um, Michel Foucault gave a series of lectures in the 1970s and one of them, uh, which ended up in the form of a book called Society Must Be Defended. He talked about this idea of boomerang effects and he talked about how when a colonial power goes overseas and creates uh, judicial and policing and military forms of control over a subject population, that sooner or later there's a boomerang effect with those same methods that have been used overseas by the um, the the colonial power come back and get applied to its own population in the metropolitan country. And I've written about this pretty heavily in a couple of my books on the war on terrorism about how many of the ideas that were invented in Iraq or Afghanistan uh, have now come back and are embodied in American policing techniques that are being used in uh, inner cities in 
in the US right now. The people that are at the most uh, violent end of the spectrum are applying counterterrorism techniques. People at the more um, community policing end of the spectrum are applying uh, ideas that fit much better with soft counterinsurgency techniques. Ironically, of course, there's actually a significant human network overlap because a lot of police are also reservists who also served in Iraq or Afghanistan. Many of the folks that have done, uh, you know, information operations or uh, other military operations overseas come back and retire and join local government and then are bringing those ideas, whether they like to or not, uh, into the way that they think about uh, conflict. And, of course, a lot of the people that are throwing bricks at police right now in the States or um, walking around with AK-47s and opposed to the government are, in fact, uh, veterans. So I think there's an interesting... I, I think you can make the case that what we're seeing now is a sort of civilizational boomerang effect from 20 years of counterinsurgency and counterterrorism overseas in places like Africa and the Middle East. Yeah, yeah. I can yeah, I can see how that that would work. I think I would still stay away from from the word civilizational. To me that has a ideological ring to it, but I think we mean exactly the same thing. That sort of I think Foucault called it internal colonialism. And That's I think right. in, in very simplified terms we could probably talk about blowback, you know, sort of in more pop pop psychology or pop sociology terms. Um, And I think that's a really, really important um, point to make in this regard. Um, Let me ask you why you find the word um, uh, civilization uncomfortable. Is it because of the way that China has been describing itself as a civilization state? Is that what you mean? I think it goes, I think it's Huntington. um, Right, okay. The sort of clash of civilizations. Yeah, it, it just, you know, treats civilizations as as entities sort of bound it as if we all have the same identity. And I think it very, very easily gets enmeshed with sort of ethno-racist um, fantasies about our civilizational superiority. And I think coming from Germany or growing up in Germany and then going to high school in the States, um, I, didn't, I, didn't, I haven't lived in Germany um, as an adult. I left when I was, when I was a, in my late teens. But I feel like that as a kid that has really left an imprint on me and seeing the kinds of arguments you can make in the name of civilization. It's a little bit like that utopian impulse I was talking about in the earlier session. It, you know, it can make the argument it ha- always has a totalitarian seed in it because as you're trying to impose your version of the ideal order, um, when you say civilization, it, it just, to me, it implies that there's a level of superiority um, because there's the civilized and there's the savages. So you, 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 you kind of, it's very easy to give way to to arguments about, about well, we're the in-group and they're the out-group because we're civilizationally superior. And I think from my time in high school in the States, I went traveling to Latin America. Um, and there, when you're thinking about some of those arguments of you know manifest destiny um, and the Monroe Doctrine, I think a lot of damage can be done in the name of civilization. Yeah. I, I thought you were going to go in a different direction because you, you probably know China and Russia have started, and actually India now, have started describing themselves as civilization states, right? So by contrast to what they describe as the market states of the US or Australia or or, um, or Western Europe. Yeah. So the idea that, um, you know, Russians have this notion of the Ruskimir, you know, the Russian world that is a, defined by 
shared language, not necessarily ethnicity, um, shared Russian culture, um, some kind of relationship with Mother Russia, and it incorporates, you know, parts of Alaska and uh, Latin America as much as it does, uh, you know, Russia. And, of course, China talks about itself as a, as a civilization and claims uh, an overarching authority over basically everybody in the planet who has some kind of uh, ethnic connectivity with, uh, with mainland China. Yeah, that and is it, so fascinating, that angle. Yeah. Um, it's an interesting difference, right, in the way that these, organ these countries are trying to portray themselves. And there's actually a, I mean, this is, this is right up your alley, actually. There's a current narrative fight going on that I'm sure you're aware of between the US and China. China describes itself as China. Um, the US describes it increasingly as communist China. Yeah. It's trying to make the case that China doesn't have the right to <clears throat> claim leadership over, let's say, the Australian Chinese community, which has been around for a hundred years yep. before there was a China, you know, and this idea of the CCP virus, right, the Chinese Communist Party virus rather than the the COVID-19 virus. That's a bit um, of a nuance in there. So yeah. that was it. Um, that was obviously tongue-in-cheek. That is so such a fascinating point because for me what I was saying before sort of connects to that. So I feel like the two, they just flow into each other. So that I, I think it's called discursive power. You could call it discursive power. And it does connect to Foucault again what, what China's doing. I think they're calling it discursive power themselves. And it's yeah. it's manifested in things like, you know, this wanting to have the say over how you name things. We're, we're coming back to Foucault and, you know, and the order of things and the power that lies in being able to to label something in that it's not just it's not just a name. There's power relations inherent in that, you know, and sort of trying to force companies uh, like Qantas uh, on your screens on an airplane, how you would call Taiwan. Yeah. That's that's that, but it ties into those greater civilizational narratives. And I'm I'm not, um, I don't have any expertise um, in in China, so I would be, you know, touching on these ideas in a very rudimentary way and probably not doing them justice. I, I did learn a lot from um, uh, my friend, who's an exceptional China scholar, and she was the the one that had introduced me to that concept of discursive power when I was telling her about my research and I was saying, oh look. You know, it's how these how these groups imagine themselves as moral powers. That is so interesting to be able to see the same arguments being made by by great powers. And I think on a on a on a subsequent trip to Europe, I picked up a book in a in a bookshop next to the Brandenburg Gate, um, and it was called the Anti-Europeans. And it was dealing with three different ideologies. One was obviously jihadism, and you know the onslaught of of the wild barbaric hordes from from um, the Middle East um, and their caliphate. Um, mm. that sort of that's in quotation marks because that's sort of how the book, uh, how the book was sort of analysing it. The next one was, was right-wing extremism and Breivik. And the third one was um, the uh, Eurasian ideology that you were mentioning before and, and Dugan and how that's mm. influencing the Kremlin's um, expansionist um, ideas or, or foreign policy. Yeah. Um, Alexander Dugan's a very interesting character. Yeah. I, I read about him a bit in my, in my last book. And, you know, he took up weapons at the age of, you know, nearly 60 and went to fight in Crimea uh, as part of this kind of neo-Eurasianist yeah. um, um, agenda. And, you know, it, it, it's, it is interesting. You mentioned the FARC earlier, and I want to bring this back to your dissertation, right, and what, what you're working on. Um, but I did a, a lot of work in Colombia 
um, a few years ago. And at one point when I was out in the bush with the Colombian military, one of them handed me a FARC uh, armband. You know, they wore these armbands to yep. indicate um, who they were. I was really struck by the FARC badge and what it says about what we might call the imaginarium, right, of the FARC. Uh, it is the colours of the Colombian flag with the map of Colombia uh, superimposed. And then it says, you know, Fuerzas Armadas Revolucionarias de Colombia, um, which is the FARC name around the outside. So it's what you see by looking at that is they're not, they're not arguing about what the boundaries of Colombia should be. Yeah. They're not arguing about uh, the sort of national identity of Colombia. They're fighting about how that entity should be governed, but they're not in any way questioning the sort of geopolitics that, I mean, for example, Panama, which was stolen by the US from Colombia in the early 1900s, isn't on their map of Colombia. Um, and it, you contrast that with a group like Al-Qaeda in Iraq. I remember watching an interview with uh, the head of AQI back in uh, 2004 or five, I guess, um, before he was killed, a um, guy uh, called Zakawi, mm. and somebody was critiquing him as a Jordanian and saying, you're coming in here and you are a Jordanian and you're trying to push Iraqis around. And he simply said, I don't subscribe to the Sykes-Picot boundaries. <laughs> Basically, it's like the opposite of the FARC. He's like, I don't know what this Jordan thing is that you're talking about, yeah. but I'm, I'm not in your little club, you know. Um, and I, I think it's a sort of interesting difference in the mental framing of the the problem set, right? Absolutely. Like, Benedict Anderson was really onto something with his imagined communities and, and uh, you know, how he was, the maps were were a very big part of that or money, currency, what we've also seen with, with IS. Um, it's, it's how you, how you, your imagined community, you can redraw the boundaries because there are a lot of, there's metaphors, there are symbols at work. You work with what you've got on the ground. And a lot of times um, it's, it's just laden with meaning, right? And that, and that's yeah. the interesting bit. And that's what sort of where sort of coming back to maybe um, where we start a little bit with the title of this, that I don't quite like uh, terms like information warfare because it just totally ignores when it gets thrown around um, in sort of this technical way that it just ignores all those, all those layers of meaning what actually motivates people to do what they do. Because if we're seeing even a thug, that's how he's commonly um, described as Sarkavi, who's you know, sitting in jail, slicing his tattoos off um, to, to show how pious he was and to leave behind his criminal past, who you know, apparently wasn't the most intellectual uh, of, of the jihadi leaders and who had a hard time even sort of being, having those pious credentials because he was sort of making it up and he was a bit... Um, apparently sort of a bit um, like quite driven by, by some violent fervor where, where some would say, well, that's a bit too much for us. If he could come up with some sort of nuanced argument, I don't know who slipped him the Sykes-Picot uh, um, phrase, um, that tells you something, that it's not just a technical matter of, you know, we just have, they have some narratives and we're just going to, we're just going to get in there with our narratives, especially if we use a term, I think narrative is a lot better than information. Um but it's still, if, it's, if it doesn't unpack the whole complexity of what goes into those imaginaries or how people justify what they do and how they sell it to 
to their constituencies, then we're missing a lot. So I feel like when it's in that really cl- clearly delineated definition, information can miss a lot of those things. That's why I cringe a little bit when I hear terms like information warfare thrown around without the proper um, explanations of what we mean by that. Yeah. Well, often, and it does it does mean different things to different people, yeah. right? Um, are you hoping that your uh, PhD will help to reframe that a little bit in terms of how people think about it? I find it really fascinating how the concept of narratives has has made its way into into military literature. There's some really really good work being done on unpacking that, um, where social scientists' expertise is sort of. Um, flowing into that and and there's you know and more multi-dimensional understandings of of ideology that it's not just doctrine and it's not ideology versus religion i think that that is still needs a little bit of work but i think we're moving in the right direction in terms of letting a social science perspective inform more of um how we conceptualize things that's sort of what i'm um, what I would say. So, um, yes, I hope to sit in this space. You will just write your thesis and develop your thoughts and then you you feed bits and pieces into it, into the discussion bit by bit. Um, well, I wouldn't be telling yourself that. I yeah. mean, I, what, you're, what you're looking at is incredibly fascinating and moreover, you're doing it at a very dynamic time when, you know, we've got this kind of non-overlapping Venn diagram where people in different parts of the political spectrum are perceiving reality almost completely differently from other people. And it's almost like people actually now have no common shared agreement on reality, um, which in a, in a way is a side effect of the information environment that we find ourselves in. But it's also a, you know, it's an opening to all kinds of information warfare that our adversaries might like to direct to us, um, you know, in, in the future operating environment. Yeah, absolutely. And that, I think that's where it, it, it's, it comes down to acquiring a new new way of thinking about this or a new heuristic tool or lens on this um, that we just understand information in a different way, that we understand the value and the emotional, um, how it emotionally resonates with people, that it's a lot more focused on the content rather than just as a vehicle and how it sits in some operational cube of you know intersecting domains and and how it underpins certain things i think we need to uh, not just in the military um space but in general we need to get to a much broader um understanding of basically what makes people tick human beings because we're all human beings there's no moral equivalence we're not putting ourselves on the same on the same um on the same level with you know and trying to 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 have some moral uh, some argument of moral relativism, but I think it's it's important to keep in mind that what makes you and me tick will also take an opponent make, will also make an opponent tick, um, because we're all bound by the same human experience. And and I think those elements, what's often called the affective elements, there has been an affective turn in international relations, but emotions and fears, and that that really feeds into your your rational instrumentality and your strategic thinking that. There is, there is a very big element of it that we haven't really tapped into in terms of understanding how worldviews get constructed and how those worldviews then give rise to action, and which is what underpins strategy, I would say. And do you think it's going to look different um, between non-state, like extremist organizations versus state forms of propaganda when you, when you come out at the end of the, the research? 
That's an interesting question. Um, I haven't gotten to the nitty-gritty of that yet. I, I have a feeling that may be able to identify similar patterns. Hmm. Well, I'll be fascinated to read yeah. it, when it, uh, it when it's finally uh, pulled together. But yeah. yeah. Well, thanks, thanks, Ketcher. This has been fascinating. And um, thanks to everybody for joining us for this second part of our extended conversation. Um, so this was our sixth in our um, UNSW Canberra Navigating Uncertainty podcast. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, sponsored by the Future Operations Research Group, information warfare is one of the themes that we look at in future operations, along with cyber, urban warfare, uh, unconventional or guerrilla warfare. Uh, and I'd recommend if you're interested to go and check us out uh, on the the Hass website at UNSW Canberra. Um, we're going to wrap it up there for now, but I hope that everybody joins us for the next uh, podcast episode where our colleagues are going to be talking about the Coal Treaty. Mm-hmm.